Hello, I'm Harry Glorikian, and this is The Harry Glorikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. If you're a gadget lover and data aficionado like me, you've probably tried a lot of different fitness monitors and other wearable devices, like a Fitbit or an Aura Ring or an Apple Watch. We've talked a lot about these devices on the show. Usually they come with a smartphone app or they run their own app. And the job of the app is to track your fitness progress and encourage you to get out there every day and close your rings or do your 10,000 steps. But there's one activity tracker that's a little different. It's called the WHOOP band. The WHOOP is not designed to tell you when to work out. It's designed to tell you when to stop. My guest today is Emily Capodilupo. She's the Senior Vice President of Data Science and Research at WHOOP, which is based here in Boston. And to explain why the company focuses on measuring what it calls strain, rather than counting steps or calories, she reaches all the way back to the beginning of the company in 2012. That's when founder and CEO Will Ahmed had just finished college at Harvard and was looking back at his experiences on the varsity squash team. I'll let Emily tell the whole story, but basically Will realized that he had often underperformed because he had overtrained, neglecting to give his body time to recover between workouts or between matches. To this day, Whoop designs a signature Whoop band and its accompanying smartphone software around measuring the physical quantities that best predict athletic performance and giving users feedback that can help them decide how much to push or not to push on a given day. Emily calls the Whoop band the first wearable that tells you to do less. But it's really all about designing a safe and effective training program and helping users make smart decisions. Meanwhile, the Whoop band collects so many different forms of data that it can also help detect conditions like atrial fibrillation or even predict when you're about to be diagnosed with COVID-19. But let's be clear, it is not a medical device. But Emily acknowledges that the line between wellness and diagnostics is shifting all the time. And with the rise of telemedicine, which is spreading even faster thanks to the pandemic, she predicts more patients and more doctors will want access to the kinds of health data that the Whoop Band and other trackers collect 24-7. It was a fascinating conversation that touched on a very different way of thinking about fitness and health and on the relationship between big data and quality of life, which is, after all, the main theme of this show. So I want to play the whole interview for you now. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I have to tell you, I was reading your background and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited. She comes from like, you know, like real training and sleep and we're going to talk about these devices. And it's one of the things I use them all for. As you can tell, like I'm, I'm sort of geared up and I, I've got all of them and I, and I cross correlate and I can tell when somebody has updated something in the algorithm. Like it, I can see like all of a sudden they start moving apart from each other or being different from each other. But, you know, for those people, people who aren't, say, up to speed on the world of fitness monitors. I, I'd love for you to start, you know, by explaining, you say, Whoop's mission, and then maybe talk about different parts of your system, you know, like the Whoop band, the sensors, you know, the basic capabilities, that sort of stuff. 
Sure. Um, so Whoop's mission is to unlock human performance. And in a lot of ways, it started out at the beginning, you know, really focused on athletic performance. Our you know, origin story is very much in preventing overtraining. But as we started to do more and more research, we started to discover that the things that predict athletic performance, you know, at the sort of root physiological level are actually the same things that predict all kinds of performance. So we've seen them predict things like cognitive performance. We've seen them, you know, <laughs> predict like emotional intelligence and, um, you know, like how short you are with people, stuff like that, you know, as well as like, um, you know, how people feel like they're performing at work or in their jobs and their relationships, stuff like that. Um, so while physical performance is where a lot of those um, algorithms and sort of like our research started, we started to realize that without tweaking any of the algorithms at all, they started to like, you know, be really good predictors of other elements of performance as well. So we've really broadened our mission. It's all about unlocking human performance in the broadest sense possible. Um, and, you know, we do that with, with this device. Uh, we, you know, some of the things that we think are really important about our design as it compares to some of the other wearables is that, um, you know, as you'll see, it's screenless. Um, and we really think about the device just as this itty bitty little bit that slides out from the fabric. And so it's actually capable of being worn almost anywhere on your body. So we have clothing that totally hides it. You can wear it in your underwear, on your bra, on your t-shirt, anything like that, you know, as well as sort of the traditional wearable locations like on your wrist or bicep. And, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted that form factor is we really wanted to collect 24-7 data and be able to get this like, complete picture of your body. It actually charges wirelessly, so you don't even have to take it off to charge it. Um, and that allows us to get the most complete picture of what's going on. And so we don't miss like the two hours when you take it off to charge or you don't like charge it overnight and then miss the sleep or anything like that. And so it gives us this like really incredible picture. Um, you know, kind of one of the other, you know, important differentiators just, you know, in the hardware itself is because we're not powering a screen, we're able to put 100% of the battery into driving the sensors and getting the most accurate signal. And so when you start with the most accurate signal, the most accurate, like raw data, you're then able to power better feedback, better coaching, because you're starting with something um, more reliable. And so we've done a lot um, you know, on the like coaching side and the algorithm side that other wearables just haven't been able to do. Interesting. So Will Ahmed and John, and I'm going to try to pronounce <laughs> Capo DeLupo, thank you, uh, started Whoop in 2012, right? While John was at Harvard and Will had just graduated, right? So you know, I mean, maybe a little bit about the company's origin story or um, I don't, God, that was, you know, if I go back that far, the fitness monitoring market was like in its nascency. I, yeah, what, it was, um, you know, the Jawbone Up had just come out, the you know original Fitbits had just come out. And, you know, not too long after that, you know, the Nike fuel band started, uh, which no longer exists, yeah. of course. Um, and, you know, if you look at like, what wearables were doing at the time, oh, and then of course, um, there was this other class of wearables that had been around for a little bit, which were like, you know, the Garmin running watches. Um, right. So the kind of GPS watches that you'd put on for the run, you know, or for a bike ride or whatever it is, it would capture all the GPS data give you information about your pace and then you take it off when the, the run was over. Um, and so you kind of had those like two classes of wearables. We've had these like 24-ish seven 
um, like step counters. And then you had the like more intense while you were working out data, but nobody was really bridging those things. Um, but the sort of theme across all wearables, you know, both of those different categories at the time was this like push harder, more is more, faster is better, uh, just do it, right? All of those kinds of messaging. And we weren't really seeing, um, you know, at least with the like kind of step counter class of wearables, we weren't seeing any kind of adoption in like elite athletes uh, or even like collegiate athletes because they didn't really need to be told do more. Um, and actually what happened is sort of the, the whoop origin story is, you know, Will was captain of the Harvard squash team. And when he got named captain, he sort of committed that, you know, I'm the captain, I should work harder than everybody else. That's what like a leader does. And he worked so, so hard that he overtrained, really burnt himself out and like did really poorly. And he had this moment of like, you know, I'm on a division one school, one of like the fanciest, um, you know, uh, squash programs that there is. Why one, like, how come nobody knew I was overtraining and like told me to stop? And like, you know, who knew that this was a thing? Like, you know, I always thought that if I worked harder, I'd get better. And actually you can work too hard and working too hard is bad. And he found that like everybody on his team was really motivated to work hard and sort of motivating each other to work harder. And they didn't have that like balancing voice of like, oh, I should take a rest day and like sit out, even though like my teammates are practicing, that would have felt like very uncomfortable and like not being a team player or something like that. Um, but, you know, he started digging into the data and it really did show that like, actually like when you need a rest day, you will be stronger for having taken the rest day than you will be for like manning up and pushing through. And so, you know, he really set out to create the first wearable that was going to tell you to do less. Um, it was very countercultural in that moment, but he was trying to address kind of the highly motivated market that needed almost like permission to pull back and to like be told what their limits were. And so from day one, we were really focused on like, how can we create a recovery score that's going to tell you like you're better off resting today than you are like doing this program or that like, you know, coach could use and see the data and say, okay, these four players, they're going to do an extra set or an extra drill or whatever it is. And these four players, they're actually going to stop 20 minutes early and, you know, go sit in the sauna or stretch or whatever it is. And, you know, by modulating people's training in response to their body's readiness to respond to that training, actually create like safer and more effective training programs. And that was where we started and then kind of evolved into the product we are right now. But a lot of that is very, very much, um, you know, that philosophy is still kind of at the core of what we're doing. Yeah. I'm, I definitely have questions. We're going to definitely have to talk about the recovery score and sleep apnea because I have a vested interest in understanding this better. Um, actually, it's funny. I try to talk about this with my doctor and he's like, man, you know more than I do about this. But um, so, um, you know, but thinking about now, now the company is evolving. It's been moving forward. I've been watching it. I mean, what is the company's sort of larger philosophy about like the role of technology and fitness and health. I mean, do you feel like we're headed towards a future where everybody is going to rely on their mobile and wearable devices for health advice? I think so. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a big like asterisk to that answer, which is, I don't think that wearables are ever going to replace doctors. And I don't think that we're like trying to do that either, but we do have a lot of information that doctors don't have. And there's a really 
I think exciting opportunity if the medical community were more open to it and they're definitely shifting in that direction. And that's been accelerated by the pandemic and the rise of telemedicine um, where there really is an opportunity. I mean, um, you know, if you think about it just as like the really simple basic stuff, right? Like telemedicine appointments skyrocketed during the pandemic. Right. Every other in-person doctor's appointment I've ever been to, the first thing they do is they take your vital signs, right? Often before you even get to see the doctor, they've you know, taken your vital signs. Well, if you have a telemedicine appointment, they just totally skip it, right? And so it's like, well, you know, my wearable can tell you what my resting heart rate is, could tell you not just what it was this morning, but what it's been all month and all that kind of stuff. It also can tell you what my blood oxygen level is, my temperature. And that's a lot of information that's like, you know, it's a lot better than having nothing. Right. Uh, which is what telemedicine has you know, right now. And so it's not like, you know, let's throw out all the EKG machines and all of that. But, you know, there are a lot of situations where remote monitoring can add a lot of value. And then there's other places where even if the doctor was there to like take your vital signs, sometimes vital signs in context have a lot more information than in isolated readings. So like we published a paper um, about a little over a year ago now, where we were looking at respiratory rate uh, in response to uh, COVID-19 infections. Mm -hmm. And what we found was about three days before, up to three days before reported symptom onset, people's respiratory rates were starting to climb. And we would see this like, because daily your respiratory rate when you're healthy, it like doesn't change at all from night to night, super flat. And so it'll be like the exact same thing night after night. And then all of a sudden you'd see this spike like, two, three days before COVID-19 symptom onset, it would like stay up or, you know, keep climbing. And then three days later, you know, people would say like, oh, I don't feel well, whatever, they'd go get a COVID test. Uh, and, you know, lo and behold, it would be positive. And so it's this like interesting early warning sign. But what was really, really interesting about that study is that oftentimes people's respiratory rates were only going up like one or two breaths, which didn't make them like clinically like, high respiratory rates, like clinically significant, it was only significant in like how it was compared to your baseline. And so it's a case where like, if I had gone to my doctor and they measured my respiratory rate, they would have said, this is a normal human respiratory rate, you know, between 12 and 20 breaths per minute, which is sort of normal. But like my baseline is about 14. So if it went up to 18, that's a huge, huge rise for me, but it's still technically clinically normal. So they would have completely missed that. And so, but by having a wearable, that's like, passively monitoring my respiratory rate every single night, you could see like, okay, something's going on. And that can be a huge red flag that something's going on with your respiratory system, right? And of course, COVID-19 is a lower respiratory tract infection primarily. So, you know, it's going to show up there. Um, but, you know, we would expect to see similar things with somebody who had pneumonia or certain strains of the flu. And so these kind of like early warning signs that can show up in your vital signs before symptoms. So you're not going to have a fever yet. You're not going to be like complaining about not feeling well or have any other indication that you might have COVID. Um, and so I think that's like an example of, you know, where a wearable paired with a doctor can provide information that like a doctor in their office wouldn't be able to provide alone. Well, I, and I mean, I think, you know, if you took respiratory weight plus a slow change in temperature, right? Now you have two biomarkers that you can use to show something is physiologically off. Yeah. What we were seeing was that respiratory rate was climbing before temperature was climbing, which was interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, well, and I, you know, another story, it's funny because um, I was talking to a friend of mine and he has AFib and mm -hmm. he knew he was going into AFib. And then 
he got together with his doctor and his doctor was actually digging into the data from the whoop to mm-hmm. sort of see like when he was going into AFib and sort of, you know, using the technology um, because he wasn't wearing a Holter monitor or anything like that. This this sort of acted as a way for him to peer into when it started, how long it lasted and things like that. So um, I think when a doctor wants to, it's interesting because some of these wearables like yours have that data available for them to, you know, interrogate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think AFib is such an interesting example there, right? Because like people who have paroxysmal AFib can go into AFib for just like a couple minutes a month. And so your typical like seven day or 48 hour Holter monitor reading could easily miss it. But AFib puts you at risk of all kinds of things like stroke that you might want to be treating. And so like having 24 seven data collection over months and months and months can give you a better picture versus I don't really know too many people who are going to be willing to like wear a Holter monitor for a year. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going back to your like 24 seven and mm-hmm. the wearable and the fact that you're, you know, driving all the power to the sensors. I mean, you guys collect, I think I saw the number 50 to a hundred megabytes of data per day per user, which is <laughs> a gigantic <laughs> amount of data compared to maybe like a Fitbit or an Apple watch. I mean, why collect that much data? I mean, what do you do with it? I mean, yeah, great question. <laughs> Um, you know, we keep all of the data because it has tremendous research value in addition to being able to power the features that we're providing today. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, fascinating early research, uh, you know, very different things like um, the shape uh, that your pulse makes. So if you look at not just when, how fast your heart is beating, but like literally, you know, um, what that raw, it's called a PPG, a photoplasmography signal looks like. <laughs> Um, you can actually tell a lot about like the health of a cardiovascular system. And, you know, we published a paper a couple of years ago now where we're looking at, um, you know, age as a function of this like cardiovascular pulse shape. Um, and we haven't productized, you know, that research yet, but, you know, it's stuff that we're exploring down the road. Um, and there's just, there's so much, so much you can answer with large data sets that traditional academic research just hasn't been able to answer because they haven't had access to data like this. And so, you know, by, by keeping it all around, we're able to do a lot of research and, you know, move the field forward as well as, um, you know, create really, really feature rich uh, experiences for our members. Can I suggest, you know, custom consulting for guys like me who actually would love to dig into <laughs> the data um, as, as a service that, be, that people would be willing to pay for? Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, right? The whoop doesn't really detect when I'm exercising, right? I've got to tell it no, it when does. I'm exercising. We detect when you're working out. Because it seems like it's more accurate when I push the button first and it starts rather than wait for it to... Like if I'm about to start a weightlifting session, mm-hmm. it's more accurate when I push the button than when I wait for it to tell I'm doing something. Yeah, well, with certain activities, it's hard to get the exact start times right. And, you know, different people have different attitudes about things like warm ups and cool downs and if they should be included. So if you do have like a strong preference about whether or not you want those included, you know, we do give people the opportunity to manually uh, trim the, the bounds of their workouts or to just start and stop them manually. Um, but we do detect any activity uh, with a strain above an eight that lasts at least 15 minutes will get automatically detected. 
Okay. And by the way, I love the fact that you guys integrated with the Apple Watch because like because when I go on my treadmill, it automatically connects to the watch and then tracks the whole thing and then ports the info. That's great. That is fantastic um, as, a, as an opportunity. But, you know, how do you think about Whoop versus any of the competitive technologies? And I'll tell you why I say that. When people say, well, what do you see as the difference? I'm mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, this is more of, you know, the Apple Watch is more of what I, what I think of as an data aggregation device in a sense because it's sort of taking all sorts of stuff um you know the whoop i think of almost like a coach in a sense Mm -hmm. as opposed to it's pulling in data and pushing it out to different apps and i can do different things with it so i i I don't want to misrepresent how you might frame it but that's sort of how i think about it no, I, I think that's totally spot on. I think that you know we have a very strong uh, stance around not showing or generating data that we can't tell you what to do with it. And so, you know, we really want to be like, you know, your coach or your trainer, or, you know, at a minimum, like, you know, your workout buddy kind of thing, um, where it's somebody that or something you can kind of look to to understand you know, am I reaching my goals? What are the things that are helping and hurting me? And, and sort of how do I then like make changes to go forward? And I think one of the, you know, like biggest examples here is we've been very much like countercultural in not counting steps. And we, we've been asked a lot by our members, like, why don't you count steps? It's not actually that hard, it's not because we haven't figured out how to do it. It's that we actually don't think that they're valuable. Um, you know, steps count the same if you run them or walk them if you walk them upstairs or flat and you don't get any steps if you swim for a mile and you certainly don't get any steps if you're wheelchair bound and you know we didn't like any of those constraints they didn't really make sense to us as a metric and we also really didn't like you know this kind of arbitrary like everybody needs 10,000 steps well you know is that true if i'm 90 versus 19 is that true if i ran a marathon yesterday should i still be trying to get 10,000 steps today Um, You know, is it different if I've been, you know, sitting on the couch for three days? Um, And so we came up with this metric of strain where instead of being an external metric, like steps are sort of something that you did um, and you can count them and it's objective. Um, You know, we wanted an internal metric where it's like, how did your body respond to that thing that you did and how much load did you take as a function of what you're capable of? And so sort of what strain does, it's very much like in opposition to what steps does is they're internally normalized to reflect like, if I ran, you know, versus walked those steps, if I ran versus, you know, my brother ran and he's, you know, more fit than I am, or, you know, if I do a two mile run this weekend and then I train a whole bunch and get more fit and then do the same two mile run, you know, six months from now, I should actually get a lower strain when I do it, when I'm more fit than I did when I got, did it this weekend. Like all of a sudden strain becomes this very rich thing because it has this like natural comparison where like, you know, a higher strain actually means something objectively, both within and across people, um, you know, than a lower strain does, whereas that's not really true with steps, right? I could walk fewer steps than you, but have done them up a mountain. Um, and so have actually like put a lot more strain on my body than, um, you know, if I'd done the same number as you, but like you know, flat pacing around my kitchen while eating snacks and making dinner or something like that. Yeah. Uh, well, actually there was an interesting paper that it was a sort of a study that brought in all sorts of studies to show that, you know, at an older age, you actually, you know, you need less steps and it has a 
difference in mortality and you know whether mm -hmm. if you're younger then you want a higher level of steps and that you know but so it was a good paper i'll, I'll actually i'll send mm -hmm. you the reference later um cool. but you know the interesting thing about strain is and th this is the good part about the body and the bad part about the body is mm -hmm. in a sense is you know it optimizes itself right and so if you want to get the same strain goal and you're fit you really have to i mean at some point i'm like i look at if I had an incredible night, which is rare, uh, and it's really in the green, I'm like, I'm never going to hit that. Like, I'm going to have to run 10 miles to hit that that goal. So, I mean, I try to, like, get out and lift that day, maybe get a run in, then get a walk in. And I'm still, you know, when you can't hit that high mark, if you're mm -hmm. actually in shape. When you're not in shape, sort of, you, you can get there a little bit easier because, you're you know, your body mm -hmm. is has optimized itself in a sense, um, which is great, I guess. But when you're, when you're holding yourself up to that number, you're like, oh my God, I'm never going to hit that number. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting how the human body works, right? There's almost like this weird kindness in how we work where it's like easier and more fun um, to make progress when you're brand new and starting out and it's harder to make progress, you know, the better you are. Um, I mean, it's an efficient machine. It, it has to optimize <laughs> itself. Right. Um, so again, you were saying no display, no interface, all the information happens on, you know, the, the associated device, the, the phone. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you mentioned some of the pros and cons, but are there any other that I haven't asked? Or, you know, I know that at some point it pings me and says, like, you need to connect because it's been some time between connections. So is there a an offloading time frame that it needs to? No, it can store uh, up to three days of data on the device itself. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So if you like went camping for the weekend or something and didn't have internet, uh, we would just store the data locally and then transmit it all when you got back. Um, but it, it tries to, you know, transmit the data more or less consistent, like constantly throughout the day. What it's pinging you about is not that you're in, in any way in danger of losing the data, but just that, you know, you're behind. And so you might be missing any kind of analysis or, or you know, getting credit for your strains. So we want to make sure you're up to date so that if you want to look at your data from the day, you would have access to it. Here's a question. Like, would it ever make sense to make a Whoop app for the Apple Watch or is the device sort mm -hmm. of inextricably linked to the app? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good reasons to think about something like that, right? You could make it a lot more affordable if you didn't tie it to hardware. Um, right now, we believe that we have you know the best hardware on the market, um, but you know, there, there's sort of valid pushback that, you know, some people are willing to settle for something less than best in order to only wear one thing. Um, and they want to wear their Apple watch because they like the phone call notifications and the texting and email and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of great features that Apple has that we don't, and certainly not trying, you know, to hate on the competitors at all. But I think like, you know, the way we kind of think about what we've done is like, if Apple watch does a lot of little things, you know, at, at like a relatively shallow depth. So it's like a lot of coverage. Um, we do, you know, a, a small subset of those things, but we do them very, very, very well. 
Um, you know, and so by not doing things like putting on a screen and letting you text and all of those things, we're able to have, you know, all of the power of the device drive towards getting the most accurate signal data. And so we are sampling the heart rate you know, more frequently than Apple is, um, and the device is more purpose built around optimizing, you know, both internally and externally for the sensor. So there's even little things like electrical coupling on the circuit board. When you try and like shove too much functionality into something small, um, you know, they kind of like run into each other. Mm -hmm. So we're not trying to like make room for, you know, a GPS chip or make room for a screen or like all of those things. And so it lets us lay out the hardware, you know, very specifically for this purpose. And so we believe that and, you know, we have data to support that we're getting more more accurate, uh, like metric data. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. So switching to sort of business model, because you sort of touched on that is like, it's a subscription model. Um, mm -hmm. You don't buy the device. It's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the service starts at say 30 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. And the package actually includes the boot band. They'll, you know, just ship it to you. Like I'm wearing mine, right? And so what was the rationale behind subscription versus just selling the device and you know, if you have insight into like, how did they pick 30 bucks? Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I yeah. always wonder like, you know, did they, um, you know, is, is that something you guys felt reaches the broadest market sort of thing? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so when we actually first launched, it was, you know, sold more like a traditional hardware product. Mm -hmm. So it was $500 one time fee, sort of use it as long as you want. Um, and then we switched over to the subscription model in 2018. And, you know, we chose the price of $30. It was sort of designed to make the product accessible uh, and lower the barrier of entry. Uh, you know, $500 upfront is a lot of money, especially, you know, for younger athletes. Um, we wanted to make sure that like people in college could afford it and stuff like that. Um, and so we found, you know, just, you know, by market testing that $30 was an approachable price point and so after a couple of different market tests that was what we landed with and more or less where we've been uh, you know we occasionally discount it and different things like that and you can get a lower rate if you commit to more months up front yeah um, i so think i signed up for the maximum yeah. which then brought it down to i i think it was 18 dollars. yeah 
So here's a, you know, because this show is, you know, supposed to focus on AI and healthcare and things like that. I'm, I'm just sort of imagining in the back of my mind with that much data, you really have the opportunity to build some really cool analytics on top of it. Um, you know, what role, if any, like does machine learning or other forms of AI play in, you know, how you analyze the data and then how do you, do you actually use that to personalize it back to the individual using it? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much all my team is doing is machine learning. <laughs> so plays a huge role in, in what we're doing, um, you know, from like very traditional ML approaches. So like, if you think about how we're doing our, um, you know, sleep staging, we have, you know, polysomnography is um, like the gold standard for getting um, true, like sleep truth data. So that's like the stages when we know we're in REM sleep or slow wave sleep. So we sent thousands and thousands of people into a clinical sleep lab with two hoop straps on and they underwent like a clinical sleep study. And then we took all of the data from the sleep study, lined it up with the whoop data and then used, you know, all kinds of different traditional ML approaches, um, you know, in order to like figure out how to get from a whoop strap, the same sleep staging information that we're able to get. Um, you know, from this gold standard approach, obviously the sort of gold standard sleep study uses a lot of sensors that we don't have, um, things, you know, EEGs, which you need to be on someone's head to use. You can't get EEG from the wrist, um, like EOGs, which you have to like uh, measure their eye movements. You need a little sensor there. Um, and then, you know, we were able to find good proxies from the data that we can get at the wrist for all of those different signals and like reconstruct the same sleep stage information. So that's, um, a super fun, um, you know, ML problem. We also do things like when we detect a workout, we can figure out what, uh, you know, which sport or exercise modality you are using. And so the ability to classify those workouts is, you know, kind of, again, like a traditional ML, like time series classification problem, where we can tell the difference just from the uh, heart rate and accelerometer signals. You know, are you doing basketball or CrossFit or running or anything like that? Um, And, you know, and then, so those are kind of more traditional ML approaches. And then we've also done a lot around um, trying to understand behavioral impacts and, you know, how do your body responds to different things. And there we're doing things like much, much more personalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so like uh, we have a feature called the journal where every day you fill out like this little diary and you answer a bunch of questions about what you've done you know, in the last 24 hours. And you can self-report things like, you know, when you were eating, if you did different, like, you know, kind of wellness activities, like meditate journal um you know how much alcohol you had i always wonder like how honestly somebody answers that question (laughs) (laughs) um any of those kinds of things and then we look at the sort of signals in your data and try and you know separate out um you know which of the things are helping you which are hurting you so that we can then recommend the things that are good for you and you know for the things that are less good for you maybe help you quantify the cost of those things so that you can deploy them strategically you know we certainly don't expect everybody to you know become like a teetotaler and never drink again even though we're going to tell you bad for you because it's pretty much always what shows up in the data but we do want to help people make those informed decisions because a lot of people think like oh i can have two drinks and it won't affect me tomorrow and like you know, okay, here's the effect. And if tomorrow's not that important, go for it. And if you have that really important meeting tomorrow, maybe don't. Um, you know, we, we're not trying to, you know, kill all the fun by any means, but we do want to make sure that people are empowered by data to know, you know, 
understand what they're doing to their body and then make decisions accordingly. So I'm throwing in sort of like something important to me, right? Which is, you know, I, I have sleep apnea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because my wife diagnosed me, but then, you know, all the devices at some point, uh, my Apple watch actually asked me once, you know, are, have you ever been diagnosed with sleep apnea, which was interesting. Um, but I've noticed like the recovery number, if I don't wear my CPAP, my recovery number tends to be much higher than if mm-hmm. I do wear my CPAP. And I always wonder, is the positive air pressure cause a difference in how much your heart actually rests or not? Because it is pushing, you know, it is positive air pressure on you all the time. So even in between apneas, you don't really maybe not rest as much. And I'm wondering if you have any insight on that. Yeah, we we haven't specifically dug into why, but we have seen that as an unexpected pattern. You're not the only person to report that. Um, it's <laughs> on, on the to-do list to better understand what's going on there. You know, I think your theory is, you know, a, a valid one. We haven't um, verified or, or ruled it out yet, but, um, you know, I think, there's a lot to be learned there. And I think one of the things that's exciting about, uh, you know, the data that we're collecting is that, you know, if you wore a CPAP is one of the things you can report in our journals. We do have a tremendous amount of data on that. And, you know, therefore the ability to kind of tease that apart and get insights that haven't been made available yet by like traditional academic research. Oh, I I didn't know I could add CPAP in there. I'll have to go back and and check. Ah. but yeah, because my strain score ends up, my recovery score ends up lower. So it's like, you know, then of course I, I always exceed <laughs> on the strain side because I'm going to go work out the next day and, you know, it is what it is. The other thing that you guys offer is like whoop for teams. And I, I don't know if you mean sports teams you mean organizations I, i'm i'm not 100 percent sure because obviously i don't use that i'm using it as an individual um can you explain the additional value that whoop provides when a group of people are using it together yeah so all the above we do it you know corporate teams as well as athletic teams and there's a couple of different layers of the the added value so you know sometimes it's just accountability you know i'm on a team with my family. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of fun to make fun of each other when our recovery scores are poor and, you know, tear each other on when we have particularly good strain scores. And I, you know, there's a lot of data to support that when you have a workout buddy or you know an accountability buddy or anything like that, that you tend to stick with things longer. And so creating, you know, just like a really friendly way for people to compete and, and cheer for each other just helps with the, the accountability and the motivation, keeping people on track. Um, kind of more you know, deeper and more importantly, you know, we do have a lot of people who create teams around different kinds of like research initiatives, um, or like trying to understand, you know, a certain, um, like life stage, like we create teams for people based on the month that their babies are due. So for pregnant women can join a team of all the women on whoop who are expecting a baby in, you know, June, 2022 can, can join this team together. And, you know, pregnancy is this like very foreign, weird moment in your body where everything's changing all the time. And it just creates like a way for people to connect and be like this weird thing that's happening to me. Is it normal? Like who else is sleeping funny? And I think, you know, it's just very comforting to know that like all these weird things happening to your body aren't so weird. 
Um, and then with like the sports teams and different things like that, you know, what we're seeing is that the coaches are using the information to make better training or like decisions because now they actually have information that they didn't have access to before. So we've done a lot of work with different like collegiate programs and professional programs where they do things like if you're red, they will have you, you know, do a lighter version of the practice or, you know, skip a section of the practice in order to give your body a chance to recover. And if you're green, they might have you, you know, push a little bit harder. And so by modulating the training to where your body is today, um, we've actually shown in a project we completed a little over two years ago, that you can reduce uh, injury uh, without reducing uh, performance gains over the course of like an eight week training period. And so by reducing your training, when you're, you're red, so your recovery scores below 33%, um, you actually like, <laughs> you will reduce injury without reducing performance gains. We've shown this. And so there's like literally zero value for those coaches to like push the athletes to complete the program or, you know, the day's training. And so we've seen a lot of coaches, you know, make those different, um, you know, like training plans as well as, you know, game day decisions about who should start. Um, you know, somebody might be your best player ordinarily, but if they're red, they're not all that primed on game day to perform. And so being able to make those kinds of different decisions. And then on the corporate side, you know, people have used it in order to like triage different access to like supportive resources. Um, so we've seen people offer like, you know, breaks to people who have been red for a number of different days in a row or things like that. Um, you know, just suggest that somebody might be like burning out or overwhelmed or something like that. Okay. So Everywhere it states is not a medical device, is not intended to diagnose, monitor any disease or medical condition, right? right? What's the line in your mind between, say, a fitness monitor and a medical device? Because I think that I always think that line is getting because <laughs> you guys and others like you guys have so much data. The level of insight that I've seen when I've gone into some of these is crazy. Um, so what, what is that line in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know, it's always been the case that technology moves faster than the law. And so like, you know, I think a lot of these things are going to shift as the technology is going to force them to shift. But, you know, like you said, we have a lot of data that's quite similar. The official line is what the FDA says is the line. And the FDA has carved out this like space that they've you know, they've called this wellness devices. They've sort of reserved the right to change their mind at any time. And we very much expect them to, but whoop falls into their definition of what a wellness device is not a medical device, which is why, um, you know, we can say things like, you know, this is your heart rate. Um, but we can't say, because then you would cross into a medical device, like your heart rate is healthy. Your heart rate is unhealthy, right? You can't give those kinds of any kind of diagnoses or any kind of like you will prevent a heart attack if you do these things um, or something like that. So we have to keep the the recommendations a bit more general, a little bit more vague um, in order to not like cross over into that regulated health space. One of the things that we're seeing that's interesting is that there's been a movement in wearables to get these like SAMD clearances. So it's like software as a medical device where mm -hmm. pieces of wearables, you know, different features or different algorithms do end up going through an FDA process and getting clearance to make certain claims in different settings. 
Um, and I think that that's going to really uh, accelerate over the next couple of years. These are very long processes. Um, and then the line's going to get more and more blurry because you're going to have this like hybrid consumer medical device, which is something that, you know, until a couple of years ago, we really didn't have. There was like, you know, step counters and GPS watches and they were over here. And then there was like medical stuff that like didn't look cool and wasn't comfortable or easy to use and like was very, very expensive. And it was all over here. And now we're seeing them kind of, you know, come into the middle where, you know, more and more the medical stuff cares about being, you know, like all the human factors, like that it's comfortable to use and that people want to wear it and they can get good compliance. And the like wellness devices are finding more and more applications for their data in the healthcare space. So I think, you know, a lot of it's going to come down to like what doctors end up getting trained on. You know, if they're willing to look at this data, if they have any clue how to use it, um, you know, sort of by being in the medical world and, you know, science training their whole lives, you know, a lot of them just don't have the education and training to understand big data and to understand technology in like that way. Um, so they're not being trained on how to like make use of the data or how to apply it. And I think that that's something that might change, you know, in the next couple decades. Well, it's interesting, right? Because I always tell people, I'm like, this is a medical device. Like, I, you know, I mean, you know, you may think it's not, but it really has certain capabilities that allow it to get FDA clearance in a particular area, right? And they're picking their space one by one. Mm -hmm. um, but the amount of data that, you know, you guys pick up on all of these devices, I mean, you know, we've seen atrial fibrillation, I'm sure that, you know, tachycardia shows up on there, you know, there's different things that they, because it's 24 seven, it's looking, right? And it's mm -hmm. monitoring, and it's got multiple sensors, which you can now cross correlate. There's so much insight that comes from this that I, I would almost you know, like, love to encourage the companies to think about moving down this road, because I think it would be so helpful to patients. Um, but, you know, jumping to a different thing. So how do you guys define success, you know, for whoop, right? If you hit all your product and sales goals and for the next say two to five years, like what does success look like for the organization? Yeah. I mean, I'll let the finance team worry about the sales goals and different things. <laughs> but I mean, for me and my team, like what success really comes down to is like, can we help people make actually better decisions? You know, I think like a lot of the first generation of wearables, like it was the stream of fun facts and we're all obsessed with ourselves, right? Like humans are sort of naturally narcissists, <laughs> at least to a certain extent. Like, so it's like fun to be like, Ooh, I slept for seven hours or like, Ooh, I ran a mile, but it's like kind of, you maybe already knew that. Right. Um, and I think like what we're trying to do and like where we see a lot of success is can we tell you something that you don't know right. and can we convince you that you should do something about it? And then can we make you like realize like, oh, wow, this like incredible thing happened and I feel so much better. And like the features that we get the most excited about or like the sort of user stories are not like, wow, it's like so much fun to see my sleep data or like, you know, this was fun, but like when we released our paper showing that this respiratory rate spike um, sort of predicted or, you know, often preceded um, COVID symptom onset and therefore COVID infection, uh, the paper came out and it was like right before Thanksgiving. And we saw so many people tell us that like, because they had a respiratory rate spike, they didn't go home for Thanksgiving or they didn't travel. And then like, 
they tested positive a few days later and they were like, my grandma was at Thanksgiving or like, you know, my (laughs) uncle who's in his eighties or stuff like that. And, you know, those kind of moments where it's like, we educated you, we showed you this vital sign that like, you never would have felt anything. You didn't know you were sick. You weren't feeling bad. It's not like you went to go get a test because you weren't feeling good. Like you just saw this in your whoop data and you're like, you know what, I'm going to stay home and not risk like seeing grandma because whoop said so. Right. And then like, who knows how many like COVID infections didn't happen and like what kind of role we played there. And like, it was probably like the most meaningful thing like we did that year. Um, And we did a lot of other cool stuff, but like, it was to think that by helping people notice that pattern, like potentially they saved a relative's life and, you know, all the like crappy things that would happen if like you thought you were responsible for killing your grandma, right? How much that ruins your own life as well. Um, I think like we just get really excited about that. And, you know, one of the features that we released um, is last year was we were looking at how the your reproductive hormones as part of your menstrual cycle affect your ability to respond to training. And, you know, I was an athlete my whole life. I was a gymnast, like before I could walk and like, nobody asked me <laughs> a single time, you know, when my last period was or anything like that, that was just totally not part of like, you know, the coach athlete relationship. But we know that like, you know, your ability to put on muscle and your ability to recover from training is totally different during like the follicular phase, first half of your menstrual cycle than it is during the luteal phase, which is the second half. And if we modulate your training, so you're training more during the first half of the cycle than the second half, you can like way more efficiently build muscle and strength, um, have fewer injuries, make more efficient gains. Um, And if we and now we do coach in our product women to do this. And we've gotten this like incredible feedback of like people saying they feel so much better. And like, you know, their, um, you know, their training's going more smoothly and they feel like their body's so much less random, you know, it feels more predictable and they kind of understand what's going on. Like nobody ever told them that reproductive hormones were relevant beyond their role in reproduction, but they actually affect like everything we do, right? Like when progesterone's elevated in the back half of our menstrual cycle during the luteal phase, we sweat more and we lose a lot of salt by doing that. And so we need to like eat more salty foods and we need to be like more careful about hydrating, which is really important if you're an athlete, but nobody's telling us this. And so like, you know, we can connect these, like by looking at big data because we are tracking your menstrual cycle, you know, around the clock or around the month, Um, you know, we can like put that into the product. And then we see people are like making better training decisions, understanding their body, feeling like things are less random. Right. And that's so empowering. And I think like female athletes in particular have been so underrepresented in research. There's a paper that came out eight months ago that said that just 6% of athletic performance research focused on women. 6%. And it was looking at all research between 2014 and 2020, and it was trending down, not up. So it was worse than like, you know, 2018, 19 and 20 than it had been like earlier in the 20 teens. Um, And so it's like completely neglected. And this is all this data that like wearables and, you know, Whoop are sitting on. We're able to create features around that and just, you know, help people understand their bodies in a way that like nobody else is doing right now. And so those are the features that like, I really define as like big successes. You know, if we made our sleep staging accuracy, 1% more, you know, accurate, or, you know, we caught one more workout. Like those are obviously like, you know, from a pure data science, like perspective, they can feel like wins, but what we really care about is like, am I helping you kind of cheesily going back to like our mission? Am I helping you unlock your performance in some way? Am I helping you like understand your body and making a better decision? Like 
are you better off for having been on loop? And that's what, you know, internally, those are the KPIs that we track the most closely. Yeah. And I mean, I would encourage you as well as all the other companies to, you know, peer reviewed papers, get them out there. Right. I mean, just when I search the space <laughs> or peer reviewed journals for things utilizing the technologies, I mean, there's not a whole lot out there. And then the other thing is, is sometimes I read the devices they're using. I'm like, what, what is that? I've never heard of that device. And if I haven't heard about it, it, it's not, it's not, it must be on the fringe, uh, sort of thing. Uh, so I would highly encourage it because, you know, people like me would love to be looking at that sort of data because I'm constantly investing in the space, constantly working with the different technologies, you know, constantly talking to people through the podcast or writing a book. You know, mm -hmm. so that information is incredibly useful to someone like me as 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 well as the average person. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could send a message back through time to yourself in 2013, mm -hmm. when you joined the company, you know, what would you say? What have you learned about the wearables and fitness market that, you know, you wish you knew then? Oh, what a fun question. You know, I think like, it's hard to know what I like wish I knew earlier because like in so many ways, and I feel so lucky that this is true. Like the vision that Will pitched me on when I met him, like when he was like, come join Whoop, this is why it's super cool is like exactly what we're doing. Um, and so like, I did trust him. I guess my message in a lot of ways would be trust him that like, this is for real. Um, you know, I think the space has been so exciting and just there's so much opportunity. And, you know, I came from doing academic sleep research and, you know, I would <laughs> work on these papers where we had like, you know, 14 subjects and it was like, oh, that's a, that's a good size sleep study. Like that'll get into a good journal. And everyone was like excited. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, I just, um, uh, working on a paper right now and we have, you know, 300,000 people's data in it. You know, we're looking at like a year of data at the time. So we've got, you know, just like millions and millions of like, you know, sleeps and workouts in this data set that we're, you know, combing through. When we did this project, um, which was published in the British Medical Journal last year, where we were looking at um, the menstrual cycle phases and how they, you know, affected your training, we looked at 14,000 menstrual cycles, like these, just the orders of magnitude more data than what you can do in traditional academic research. And, you know, that's what I got really excited about. It's why I became a data scientist because you know, I realized that like the most interesting questions that there are to answer about, you know, how humans work <laughs> are gonna require larger data sets than we've had access to before, so. Um, I'm putting in a plug for sleep apnea, man. If you get a chance, I'd love to see that, a study on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, sleep apnea, it's, it's definitely on the list. About 80% of sleep apnea is believed to be undiagnosed. Um, and, you know, it does have, you know, tremendous, um, you know, effects on long-term health when it goes undiagnosed, uh, especially in like later stages. And so, you know, anything we can do around, um, you know, helping people realize that they might have sleep apnea and then helping them treat it once they do and better understand like the disease progression and all of that, you know, has a huge quality of life implications down the road. I will happily volunteer. So, um, <laughs> great to speak to you. Um, very insightful discussion. I'm going to tell my wife about the whole menstrual cycle thing and working out and this is exactly why she eats salty food, like at certain times. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but um, this is great. I'm so glad to have you on the show, and uh, I look forward to seeing the progress of the company and the technology. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode, as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.